Kevin Carr, Rayshard Brooks, Dante Wright, Makia Bryant, Marvin Scott III, Darius Washington, Nika Holbert, and at least 218 more Black people have been killed by cops since George Floyd's murder. Hi, and welcome to this week's special edition of the Five Things Podcast. My name is Danielle Hunt, producer for great podcasts, particularly this one, executive assistant to the Global Growth Team, and six-year veteran at Gray. We're taking a break from talking about social and digital media to continue the conversation from last year's hashtag podcast blackout episode. Today, along with two of my colleagues, we will discuss five things in the last year that have changed, while we know a lot remains the same. We acknowledge that no matter what we do, it will never be enough. For those who haven't been a part of the fight yet, know that wherever you start might not be perfect, but we must genuinely act. Joining me today, we have Lori Bullock and Andre Gray. Lori Bullock is a two-time Emmy Award-winning VP executive producer who helps our most storied brands create content that changes brand perception, which includes Pfizer, Eli Lilly, GSK, and P&G. She has been a part of Gray's workforce for over 20 years. Andre Gray, G-R-A-Y, is an executive creative director and newbie to the Gray family, and he is no stranger to making brands better people. His first project at Gray was in collaboration with Vital Voices and Amanda Gorman, which consisted of a nonprofit advocacy effort for International Women's Day. In addition to being author of the book, Digital Anthropomorphism, Humanizing the Brand, Andre was recently inducted into Adweek's Creative 100 as one of the most inspiring talents of 2021. Welcome, Lori, and welcome, Andre. Thanks, Danielle. Yeah, thank you. Hello, Andre. Hello, hello. Happy to be here, and, and thank you for the gracious introduction. Fasten your seatbelts as we are jumping right into this week's five things, where Lori will discuss new American leadership and allyship, I will discuss the evolution of cancel culture since George Floyd's murder, and Andre will talk about advertising's role and peeling back the layers of unconscious bias in the workplace. Without further ado, Lori? Yes, thank you. <laughs> so um, I guess we all know why we're here today to kind of talk about the state of our current climate coming out of the pandemic and the pandemic of inequity racial disparity and racial inequality, and how that kind of intersects with the new American leadership that we have at the helm, which of course is President Biden and his Vice President Kamala Harris, our first African-American female president, also Asian president, and what kind of effect she has on people of color, primarily Black people, as we um, look towards her for leadership and our new American leadership for the Biden administration. Obviously, she's going to be at the side of President Biden championing systemic racism, wealth inequality, and all of the things that are coming out of the pandemic. But we also see a very large backlash whenever people of color and women make great strides in holding high office, particularly Blacks, and what we're seeing uh, as that relates to the January 6th insurrection. So, you know, it kind of sets us up to what we're seeing um, at the state of America right now and what that all means for a ever-growing minority majority, which I think is really at the core of why we're seeing so much division right now and backlash if we really want to talk about it. Um, with respect to um, the nation and our issue and pandemic of uh, racial disparity? I think you hit the nail on the head, right? Like, I think a lot of times we want to think of progress and change as kind of this steady steps forwards. You know, you want to see the graph and the graph is constantly moving upwards and forwards. But in reality, it's much more like five steps forward and four and a half steps backwards. 
you know, like for every time we move forward in that same moment, there's a backlash that pushes us backwards. Right. So for Juneteenth, right. You have emancipation proclamation, you know, 1865, you declare that black people are free from slavery. Then you then declare that they should receive 40 acres of, of land, but then you take that away. So instead of giving them anything, you, you know, give compensation and reparations to the landowners for property loss, right? So it, it's, it never goes back and forth. And even on a larger scale, right, that leads you directly into Jim Crow. And I think that's the kind of two, two things that you see, right? When, you're, when, you're t- when you look at the January 6th insurrection, um, that's a bunch of people who can't understand their world outside of understanding their social structure that's been given to them and the priority that they feel that they deserve as white people, which is crazy, right? Like it's crazy, not only the lack of personal identity and accountability, but that undoing or questioning or trying to reevaluate something in your social structure and your social hierarchy that allows for more people to have more of a say, because that's the thing about equity. It's not a call for all of a sudden, let's turn the mic off for white folks. That's not really what anyone's saying. They're just saying, let's have all the mics at equal volume. But the prospect of that is so foundational and and it's ripping apart their understanding of the world in a way that's having people act completely out of character. And I don't think, I'm not saying that as an excuse, you know, like they are responsible hundred percent for their actions because they're adults. If you go and you're an adult, you do something that's the bill comes due as a, you know, my man, uh, Edgy of Four said in in, in Doctor Strange, but it is why they're acting out of character, you know, and and that's a really terrifying thing that people are not confident enough in themselves to um, accept the fact that we can have a more equitable world. And it actually, it's what I love about um, Famously Effective and it's what I love about Gray, right? Like diversity is not a nice to have. It is not to placate or make nice to black people. It is good business, period. It is the best way to get the most minds and points of view rubbing against each other in any process, but especially in the creative process to come with new and unseen answers that allowed them to be effective business for our clients. So there is no excuse. Um, And if that shakes you in your boots, you probably need to go, you know, on a, on a, on a nature walk for a long time and, and figure some stuff out with yourself before you try to figure it out with other people. Absolutely. Um, Danielle, uh, any points you'd like to add to that particular topic? I mean, you know, if anybody listened to the podcast blackout episode from last year, you know, I'm going to come with the very, um, I love to call it the Oprah super soul Sunday type of, uh, energy that I always feel like, I wish we could stop living in a time where people were so selfish to their own agenda. And if we weren't so selfish to our own agenda, then we could have a more equitable space. That's just really it. For sure. I mean, the definition of equitable space is really a curious one because that goes without saying, because we've got to talk about what lies in the middle, which is right that racial wealth gap. And today it's really massive. And I think that's one of the foremost principles that um, Vice President Harris um, and President Biden are have really made as part of their agenda, which is causing a bit of strife, obviously, as we talk about the insurrection. Um, and also comes with that is the attempt to curb voting rights against people of color, particularly those that look like you and I, African-Americans. All of those things are related because, in my estimation and from my analysis, the GOP opposition is facing um, a segment that really speaks to a core minority that just doesn't want to talk about racial injustice against Black people because they feel like they're suffering from discrimination, as odd as it sounds. So that the term white grievance is really at the heart of it. And sadly, for that minority of group within the GOP that is really growing to be quite mainstream, 
they really just don't have much interest in narrowing the racial gap because they think it will come out of their pocket. And they're really terrified of the fact that America is on a path to becoming a majority minority. You know, we've already seen that uh, in terms of the past elections. You know, the Democrats have won the popular vote in, what, seven out of the eight of last elections. So their response really is now to try to make things harder for non-white Americans to vote. So here we are at the crossroad of trying to navigate our way in this new millennium, and we're still dealing with Jim Crow issues that are making it harder for people of color, namely black people, to vote, to express their freedom as Americans. So there's so much work to do coming out of where we were last year, talking about the George Floyd decision um, in terms of having his murderers go to jail and, and his family receive some sort of justice. But the more things change, the more they stay the same. Danielle, I know you read some names of African-Americans that have been murdered or, or have lost their life, if I'm going to say it in a more gentle, kinder fashion from what we call state-sanctioned violence or at the hands of police. And it's still upsetting. We still have so much work to do. So um, with that being said, we are looking at this rollback of voting rights, all of these things that affect the Black community. Um, and I think we've got a lot of involvement to do and how that affects with the businesses that we represent and our clients. So I'm interested to know if this is a, an agenda that we need to push harder and, and make it more relevant to the businesses that we often engage as well, because I think it's going to take the business and the corporate community to really make an effect on the political community to stop the oppression. Any yeah. thoughts from the both yeah. of you? We're, we're in, first and foremost in a capitalist society before we are in a democratic society. And it's important that business no longer can sit on the sidelines. They're at the forefront. They're in the middle. Um, and it's important, right? Like for me, one of the things that I've seen, I mean, if you look at like the last five years, right, you, you look at trends, everyone was asking the last five years, last 10 years, you know, what is your business about, right? In the post kind of product red era, you know, are you donating? What is your social responsibility, et cetera, et cetera? Are you about sustainability, whatever, what have you? And now through the lens of 2020, I think the biggest business metric will be authenticity. It will be, are you doing what you say you will do? Are you living up to be the person that you told the world that you were as a brand, right? It's a very important distinction. And, um, but I want to touch on one of the things that you were talking about earlier when People mm -hmm. are saying, hey, there's injustices happening to black people and their knee jerk reaction is to say, oh, well, I'm also suffering, you know, injustices as well. Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Right. One, this is not a zero sum game. And it comes down to do you have the ability to hold two ideas, you know, in your head at the same time? You know what I mean? If I walk yeah. onto the street and get punched in the face and you walk onto the street and get punched in the face, is one of us not punched in the face because the other one is? No. We're just saying right now we are trying to alleviate, um, evaluate, and try to uh, um, change the circumstance that has led to an unequal amount of Black people being punched in the face, which is so mind-blowing in light of the fact that literally America has been built on the backs of Black people. And that is the only thing that we're asking. It's like, stop exploiting us, give us our due in the process, and give us a say in the process. And no one's saying oh, all of a sudden, let's undo America. That's not what we're saying. We're just saying you don't have to always profit. You already still will have the net benefit, whether you're just a white person or whether you are America. It's not like we're going to go back and, hey, let's rewind the clocks and get rid of slavery. No, like it's already been done. You already got your 40 acres in a mule when we didn't. And now you've built generational wealth on the backs of not only the profits that you receive from slavery as a system, but also from the profits of the reparations you received from losing slaves as property oh, laws. Man. So you, yeah. you good. <laughs> we just want to be kind of okay. We want to be set a little bit on a path to, to, to not only financial retribution, but also at the end of the day, it comes down to lack of familiarity because the, the idea of a homogenous black person, right? Like I always say this, like my time in Europe, it was like, if your only references to, Black people are Migos and the Jeffersons. You're going to have a really hard time interacting with me because I don't really fit 
any of those things. And I probably fit both of those things. Like for brief moments, you're like, I don't know what's going on with this dude. And that's the reality because we're all real people. We don't, we're none of us are homogenous, but it's that lack of familiarity that makes you into a, a stereotype unconsciously or consciously in, in the, in, in one's mind. Yeah, Andre, I just wanted to sort of unpack that last thought that you had about the financial impact with the inequities that we're seeing and being able to really understand what's happening. And I think you mentioned that there's a lack of knowledge, but I don't know, within the last year, there's been a lot of talk about it. We've seen it all over the airways. We've seen lots of books about it. People are talking about it. So it's in the public square. I think really, if we really get down to it, people don't really want to hear it. What we're starting to see is sort of people kind of moving away, like they're kind of tired of it. And the current movement at large is probably having something to do with it. You know, we're dealing with critical race theory with educators not wanting to teach it. Because at the bottom of it is a very ugly, sordid history that no one really wants to get at, right? And that means, what does that mean for legislation, civil rights, John Lewis Act, election, and trying to repair what has been done in the past, if that means there's an economic value to it? And again, it's coming, it's this grievance that who's going to pay for it? I don't want it to come out of my pocket for many um, white Americans that have this issue. So it's a constant circle that we're, we're going to have to pay attention to. Uh, I'm tired as well. <laughs> we're all tired. Yeah. So <laughs> as much as you're, as people might say, they're a little bit tired of hearing about it. We're tired of living this shit every day. So that's exactly what I was getting ready to say. I'm like, this is the skin that we've been living in as an individual, as a people, as a race for hundreds of years. And that's not going to change. Right. So do we have a right, right to have this grievance? They have a right of to course. have their grievance. Of we saw this insurrection happen, but what happened if we're allowing our grievance to show on the outside? Could you imagine what right. that would mean for us? Well, it would look like bigger Thomas. <laughs> yeah. From Native Son, right? But, and, and that's the whole thing, right? Like, you know, Trevor Noah said it. He did a nice bit um, last year, you know, in, in June about code switching and things of that nature. But, you know, not only amongst the fact that we're doing our jobs, we're also doing the job of not spazzing out <laughs> because of how heartbreaking. And I always laugh. I don't mean to laugh. I always laugh because it's so tragic and heartbreaking that either I laugh or I cry. Like, that's how bad it is. If you want to go it. look at look at Dick Gregory, look at Richard Pryor, you know, look at Eddie Murphy. Why are these comedians so funny? They are so funny because they are so sad. That's what you have to understand about that. And that's heartbreaking. And that's the reality. And that's what being an ally is. It's saying, it's not about me. I'm trying to figure out how I can support another person. And what they're going through has nothing to do with what I'm going through. I might also be going through something bad. But the fact of the reality is what we're going through is systemically unjust and not created by our own means. Um, I think the other thing I will mention is what I was saying before. I was talking about individual familiarity, not familiarity with the subject. I'm talking about, oh, I don't know enough black people. Or I haven't known a black person well enough that I can get past the fact that not all black people are the same. You know, that, that's what I was talking about. And that's unfortunate when people don't grow up or are never in situations where they have a real black friend, where they have those, you know, when your friend is your real friend, you have uncomfortable conversations. You ask them stuff. But you don't ask other people. And those conversations are pivotal. And if you never come across people from different cultures in that way and open yourself up and make yourself vulnerable, you'll continue to be a homogenous, stale-minded individual. And that, that could be detrimental to your health in the long run. That's true. Yeah. Even as we're talking about the individual scope. Um, but Andre, I want you to speak to, I know you're saying about the individual but I want you to speak to actual advertising's role without compromising our jobs. You know, what, 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 what role does advertising have in this, in this space? Well, it's pivotal, right? I mean, it, it, it's crazy. Like before, before Black Lives Matter and, and this kind of, you know, racial awakening, so to speak, right? I don't mean it's for people who are, are Black or people of color, but like, you know, the society at large realized that other people were other races and that it was, it was uncomfortable. Um, 
I didn't even talk about kind of my motivation to get into advertising, but I'm in advertising because of the influence that it has on the zeitgeist and on people and the images that it puts out into the world, right? If we go out there and we make Moonlight and we make Queen and Slim, we change the movies and we change the narratives and we we stop portraying black people as either triumph or tragedy and all this other stuff. And then we cut to commercial and it's the same 12, you know, white, male, heterosexual, cisgender, you know, dudes that are making all the ads and they're kind of funny, haha jokes for them and themselves. We haven't done the job, right? And, and that's just at a baseline. That's not even to say the potential that advertising has now because everything can be an ad, right? Transformers 3 is an ad, right? So if anything can be an ad now, well, now I can do anything to build equity against a brand. And now a brand has an ability to interact with people in a two-way interaction, right? Via the internet, I can tweet to Nike, they can tweet me back. And I expect them to be the person that they said they were. I expect them to just do it to me. I expect them to be a coach and inspire me and all this other stuff. So now you have an opportunity to not only just not offend people, which is hard enough as it is, shockingly, but now you have an opportunity to do better, right? And of course, I love the, you know, culture-focused briefs. I love the briefs for Asian History Month, Black History Month, et cetera, et cetera. But I want to see more equity and real, just representative storytelling in the regular stuff. I want you to sell a product like with black people in it the way you sell a product with white people in it. That's pivotal. Um, and let's talk about that. Messaging. What is the key to creating authentic messaging with respect to reaching out to, let's say, a community of color like the black community when you have a lot of white creatives that are heads of divisions, heads of groups that may not have that experience and need to find someone to sort of do a litmus test to figure out if their verbiage or their wordage is correct. And what community do you speak to? Because we're not monolithic. Right. I mean, I think it all, it all comes down to actually the same thing, which is that, that question about representation, right? And, and at the end of the day, it comes down to ego and control, right? So whether you're C-suite, whoever you are, there is a, you know, a outdated idea that that means because you have the responsibility to make the decisions, you should control the decisions, right? One of the powerful things that I watched, it was a TED Talk. I forget exactly what it was, but it was a guy who was an admiral. He was in the, he was in the Navy. He gets onto a boat, right? So now he's in charge of this submarine. This is a submarine, sorry. He gets onto the submarine. He goes to the captain who's been on the submarine for five years. He goes, fire up the aft, you know, engine, whatever, right? The guy says, fire up the aft engine. Sits around, looks around. Nobody does anything. And he, he, he goes, hey, um, why didn't anyone move? Oh, we don't have one of those, right? Just because you're in charge doesn't mean you need to control the situation, right? Like I, 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 was, I was watching that thing with, um, with Danny Meyer from who who's the owner uh, who started Shake Shack. And he said, one of the best, the biggest thing I did in my career was realize I didn't have to be the chef and cook in the kitchen. I had to be the person who organized the restaurant, right? That's what our role is as managers and our role as creatives and creative directors. We do not need to make the thing. We need to find a person to tell the story and find a conversation that our brand should be in and allow those people to tell the stories for themselves. And then we just curtail the messaging so that we just make sure that it lines up with what's needed to hit the points that the brand needs because they are paying, of course. And that's, that's about authenticity, right? That doesn't take away from your job. That makes you better at your job because if we can only see as far as one creative's vision or one account person's vision or one client's vision, we won't go very far. If we go as far as adding the visions of all the people in the process together, well, now we have hundreds of years of experience even if you had 20 years of experience just yourself. And that's the difference, right? How do we create a process that doesn't ask individuals in the process to be comfortable with the whole vision, right? I cannot go far if I need every time I make something for all the people around me, particularly if they are white people and white men who do not have an understanding of why I would do anything. 
having to feel okay from a first person point of view, as if they walked in my shoes. You never walked in my shoes. So you don't understand what I want to do. So you need to figure out how to be an ally to me if you trust that I'm the right person to do the job, right? And that's the crux of being an ally. That and and that applies tremendously to the creative process. I don't want the I don't want the photographer to ask me if we got the shot. You're the photographer. I can tell you which one I like, but you're the one who's an expert. I want you to say, we got what you asked me to get. And then I will take that. I'll take that to the bank. Right. And that's a flip. It's a different way of of approaching things, but it creates plenty of space for everyone. And that's the biggest thing to to answer your question pointedly. The biggest thing that is holding people back, because, you know, these brands and everybody, we posted black squares. Everyone said, oh, my God, black lives matter. It's so important to me. And then they went and made an audit. I don't care about an audit. Go ask a black person who's there. Go ask a, a, a East Asian. Go ask a, a Latin person who is there. Go ask a woman. She's going to tell you it's shit. It's terrible. We already knew that. We don't need to know what how terrible it is. It's terrible. But when you go from posting to audit to action, well, how do I figure out how to act when I'm completely out of my depth? But you have to empower people in a true way and not to do what you would do because doing what you would do would lead to the same answers that have been happening and that are not cutting the mustard, right? You have to empower them to do what they would do, and you have to sit in the back like Danny Meyer and say, go ahead, cook. Because it's almost like why after 130 years are we having um, imagery just now being removed from brands like Aunt Jemima and Uncle Ben? Like why did it have to take all of this time for the masses externally to say, Hey, this is not acceptable. Like, and you should have known this at least like 10 years into the brand's existence. So what, so what, so what do you say about that? Like, you know, what, what do you, what do Lori, what would you think about that? What do you say to that? Yeah, I say this, this is active allyship. What Andre is really just getting to the, the center of, right. And the issue really here is that advertising has had its role traditional advertising in stereotyping people of color, namely black people with offensive imagery, um, copy that have been a detriment to understanding who we are as a community. And at the core of advertising is the notion of community, right? It's what we all are, what we all think, what we all feel. And that is what we try and channel to put into brands because the people that operate the brands don't really own it. The brands really belong to the people, right? And that is the culture. That is what we've got to get at, at the heart of it. And if we don't understand the culture, then we're just going to make some sort of non-human entity that isn't real, that allows people to make mistakes and figure out stereotypes that don't really represent people in the best light. And that is what's happened for the past couple of hundred years. And it finally took the year of the death of George Floyd for agencies and marketers to get it together and realize they have been part of the problem. And I've always said, you know, I'm very proud to work at Gray, but I've also challenged Gray to say it's very difficult to be famously effective if you're not helping to fix the problem that this this entire industry has been a part of in terms of denying opportunities for Black people and misrepresenting them in the most awful of ways. 100%. I want to double tap louder for the folks in the back. Scientifically, psychologically, anthropologically, in any type of rigorous way, none of us especially companies, own the brands. A brand is an idea that is intangible, right? It's the whole point of the book, you know, digital anthropomorphism. You understand a brand like you understand a person because it is not something that you can touch like a cup, right? It is owned in the collective zeitgeist of individuals, of real people, right? It's in their heads. And that is an important place of humility that we should start as an industry, that we need to reflect what people are thinking and try to suggest pivots on what they're thinking, but we can't come and dominate the conversation. The only fallacy that existed previous was 
that because you're only on TV, you know, in the 80s or, or, or what have you, that no one could talk back to you. So you just never had any feedback. That didn't mean that you owned it then either. It just meant you could walk around with that fallacy in your pocket because no one ever said, hey, I'm sorry, this Marlboro ad didn't really hit for me. <laughs> it didn't really fit who I thought you were, right? So that's an important thing, and that's an important starting point, I think, for, for how we progress and move forward, um, especially from an equity perspective. Well said. I feel like I feel like we're now, as we're and that's a great segue into the third point. I was telling my friend earlier, this word cancel culture is like the beehive. I'm like, where do these people crawl out from the shadows? And all of a sudden, it's just this collective summation of people that are like, we aren't going to stand for these ideologies anymore. We will not align ourselves with products or services that don't reflect our own values and it's just like, where did that happen, right? Because I feel like, you know, we had in the time of um, Harvey Weinstein and Bill Cosby, like that, that kind of like spurred the Me Too movement. And then even like something as simple with Kevin Hart, when something that he was, that he mentioned 20 years prior that, you know, was against the LGBTQ plus community and he stepped away from the Oscars and, you know, in recent tragedy with George Floyd's murder, now it's like brands like Prada with the monkey and the young boy that was used, young black boy that was used for the H&M ad um, with the sweatshirt. It's just like, at what point um, do, do corporations, in a way, like Laura, how you were saying, combat the brand, go up against the brand and say, hey, we will not align ourselves with this in fear of like... <laughs> We don't want this cancel culture beehive of sorts to attack us. And then, you know, we don't have a business anymore. Yeah, I think everything is a balance. We just have to be very smart on how we represent people. And a lot of that starts with that root word represent, right? And that starts with the circle of the think tank that is in the room, at the table, understanding that brand, the messaging, and the community that we're targeting it to. Do they look like me? Do they look like you? Are they women? Are they uh, cis males? Are they uh, people that are from the LGBT community? I mean, it starts there, right? So we talk about representation. From a political standpoint, we talk about taxation without representation because people are being taxed and they're not being represented effectively. Well, it's the same thing here in the advertising community. It's like black people, people of color are being taxed where they have to pay the same amount of money for anything that they buy, but yet they don't see themselves in the commercials. And we want to say, why? Why is that? Some of the most loyal brand loyalists are people of color because it's taught from a culture in your community. If your mama bought it, your grandmother bought it, you bought it, you know, you're, you're going to kind of pass it on to your kids. And that is how brands stay effective and loyal. But if we're not at the table really trying to understand how we're creating these effective messages that might be offensive, that might push somebody to say, oh, we got to cancel that, then we're going to just continue to have this cancel culture happen, which is supposed to be helpful at the end of the day. But I think it could be somewhat aggressive and cause a lot of um, separation in many ways in trying to bring the community together. It actually pulls it apart in some respects. So we all have to be represented and be mindful. So we make the messaging very clear. I'm not sure, Andre, if you want to add to that. I mean, the only thing I'll say um, about cancel culture is I think it's just people voting with their dollars and coalescing with each <laughs> other in a democratic fashion to align on the same point of view. Um, so it shouldn't have a term, right? Like once you create a term and you try to vilify that term, it's the same. It, that's the, what the issue is. Don't try to avoid being cancel culture. Just don't be offensive. <laughs> be a better person, be a better brand, communicate better, and don't do anything that's offensive because those people who are value-led 
and lead properly and put their best foot forward. When these things happen, when you make a mistake as a person, you're treated as a person. When you treat yourself as some sort of monolith or some sort of um, in, in impermeable and, in, and, and immovable object, then the only way to react to that is to say, okay, well, let's band together. We won't participate. And that's all that is. I, I don't think it needs a term so that it's a buzzworthy worthy thing that's being shot around, you know, on media outlets and things of that nature. Like, don't worry about it. Just be a better person. I would say that even with regard to what our fourth point is, with regard to workplace culture, um, the other buzzword that's being floated around in the corporate space is unconscious bias. So, it's, you know, it's like, Andre, to that end, you know, if you wouldn't mind being able to outline, like, what that looks like in the workplace, like, what signs can we watch out for, you know, yeah. helping people understand what microaggressions mean. I mean, that exists inside and outside the workplace, but... You know, I say when right. at, when you you know when you the saying in our and for me was when it starts at home. Well, being at work is the next closest place that I am to home, so I feel like it's like an extended foundation of like it starts in the workplace as well. If it didn't start in your home, so what, what could you add? What you what could you provide for that? Yeah, I mean, you know, unconscious bias is an interesting. I feel like all of these things are super interesting. Um, unconscious bias is an interesting subject. I mean, in its simplest form. It's just the things you do that you're unaware of, right? Um, that being said, there's a lot of things that are called unconscious bias, which are just people have not been forced to pay attention, right? Um, so I, I think one of the foundational elements of talking about unconscious bias is when you talk about like bell hooks and observational gaze, right? Observational gaze is that idea that as a woman and as a black woman and as a person of color, anyone who is non cisgender, white, male, heterosexual, um, at some point in their life, they find themselves in a situation where their reception in that situation does not line up with their self identification. Right. I walk into a Marshall's and damn, this security dude is in the same aisle as me again. I'm like, Hey, you just always seem to be in this aisle. That doesn't line up for me. I'm here shopping. I don't understand. Well, now I need to take myself into that observational gaze. I need to go to that third person and say, well, how do I look in this situation? And once that box is open, now you're being conscious at different levels, right? And that's the thing with intersectionality and and how all these different social structures work. Unconscious bias is about unpacking the fact that I might walk into an elevator as a six foot three, 240 pound man and not be worried about something that another person who's more slightly than me might be completely aware of and worried about. So it's really about empathy. And if you're constantly in situations thinking and trying to empathize with the people around you, not to understand what it's like in their shoes, but to say, hey, if I walk in here with a spicy tie, someone might impact what they're smelling and it might not be nice for them in their meeting. So I'm going to be conscious of that. And obviously those are very benign examples, but I, I don't really, I understand why it's called unconscious bias, but I think it's kind of called unconscious laziness because it's just like a matter of paying attention. Um, so it, it is a, it is an inviting framework of, of how we call it. And it's a good way to call it. But at the end of the day, it's like, how do your actions and impact the people around you. And if you just are thinking about that, again, you will be treated like a person. And if you do step out of line and you do make a mistake, it'll be received as a person because no one's expecting you not to make any mistakes, right? I think one of the, the crazy things I heard, it was a TED Talk with a guy called Jay Smoove at, at Hampshire College. Um, shout out to Hampshire College. Um, and he was like, people consider racism to be like tonsils, right? You either have them or you don't. And you're like, oh, but that's a really nice person. So therefore... I'm a nice person. I can't be racist. Well, no, we have a racist system, right? So everyone's racist to a certain extent, even me, right? Not on purpose, but just per the things that I'm exposed to in my life. So for me to overcome that, I need to be very conscious. I need to be anti-racist in how I act and how I put myself out into the world and how I see the world and how I think of myself so that I make sure that I overcome the circumstances that are around me, right? Because it's not like tonsils. Racism is a spectrum. 
You could do stuff that's a little racist. You could do stuff that's a lot racist, right? I don't like the word microaggressions because it makes it sound like they're small. It's not small if you stab someone in the heart with an ice pick. I mean, okay, yeah, it's worse if you shot them with a shotgun. But emotionally, if you stab someone in the heart with an ice pick, they're still going to feel like they got stabbed in the heart with an ice pick. It still is heartbreaking on a daily basis, especially in your place of work where you're not there by choice. So I know why we use the terms in that way, but really at the end of the day, it's about paying attention to how what you're doing is impacting other people. And as advertisers, who our whole job is to try to communicate on behalf of companies to other people, it seems woefully lazy for us not to be paying attention to that. Lori, do you have any thoughts to add to it? Oh, yeah, so many, but I'll just try and be quick about it. <laughs> um, it really comes down to this. Listen, I think we all know that people of color and, you know, black people are often made uncomfortable to be uncomfortable in many situations, not by their own choosing. So it comes down to this, really. If I have to be uncomfortable, then I'm going to have to raise my voice and talk about it. And, and explain as to why. And then we're going to have to, to kind of educate people along the way as to what they're saying, what they're doing, and what kind of actions, whether they're unconscious or microaggression-oriented, how we got there, and to take better steps not to do it. So we all might have to have a little uncomfortable talk and our greater, more pivotal attempt to be comfortable together, right? This is this uncomfortably comfortable conversation that we have to struggle with day in and day out. And I think people of color, primarily black people experience it so much all the time that, you know, you, you're kind of expecting it and you're just kind of waiting for it to come around the corner. And the, the, the real trick is how do you ration with it or rationalize with it or kind of help people through it? Um, so that's where we're at with that. I think we all have to just work together to help, uh, diminish the issue. It's a, it's a constant work in progress for us all. Again, a principle of allyship that we all have to kind of lean in and get to work on. Yeah. Which is very much pointing on our fifth and final, um, thing would be allyship. I know Lori, you have a lot to say, uh, with regard to, um, black communities and, the place that we have in the fight with API hate. Like, what, well, listen, what can you say about that? Is is terrible. It's awful. And anytime one minority group is targeted for hate, you know, you could be sure that the next one is going to be in line to receive it as well. I mean, the one thing is 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 I say that hate does not discriminate because it, it's applied to every minority group, right? So. Um, and in terms of our Asian brothers and sisters, we support them. You know, um, I was very happy to see the, you know, anti-Asian hate bill passed. But at the same time, as one group gets laws and protections that will help promote their safety, their well-being, their ability to move in space and places in the culture, I think they need to use their newly armed strength to help the next group, right? That's with Black people, African-American people, you know, we're still struggling with uh, not having an anti-lynching bill, right? We're still struggling with trying to get the John Lewis Voting Act passed because there's already been rollbacks from, you know, pivotal case law from 1964 and 1965. You know, really wasn't until the 13th Amendment was signed, you know, in the 60s, 1963, really, that gave Black people the right to vote. Again, Allyship is really supporting one another so that we all can achieve and be prosperous and be what it means to be an American. And when one group becomes successful and is able to contribute, then we got to help each other. And that's really at the heart of it. Yeah, 100%. You know, I mean, allyship is, is of pivotal importance. And I think you know, completely agree with everything you said, Lori. I think the other thing is it's not something that you should like wait to do, you know, at the end of the year or like, you know, on the weekend, it's a very simple thing. And it comes back to empathy. I think that's the main kind of theme I think of this whole podcast, it seems to me, but you know, when you see someone who's, who's going to speak in a meeting and then all of a sudden, you know, they're getting cut off. You, hey, excuse me. 
so-and-so, did you have something to say, right? That's what allyship looks like. Everyone has, uh, unfortunately or fortunately, a, a role to play in this racial and caste system. And you have to take advantage of your role in the system to put on and create equity across the system, right? And it, it works the same across personalities and across genders and across everything. So if you see someone being misrepresented or being shushed or being you know, underrepresented, then you have to call it. And that's what allyship looks like. It doesn't look like just wait and see if someone else is going to say something. If someone says something that was offensive, right? You know, like for me, the G word, I don't like the G word, ghetto. The ghetto is a socioeconomic place. You look at Warsaw, Poland during World War II, that was a ghetto, right? It's a, it's a place where there is a low economic earnings and therefore the people are living in poverty. That has nothing to do with black people. It has nothing to do universally. Right now we use the word urban, right? Oh, this is an urban club. What does that mean? All the clubs are in the city. <laughs> That's crazy, right? So don't try to mask your racial epithets by using a different word. Just stop describing it that way, right? You should not describe the the nature of the people that are attending your establishment because anybody should be attend, able to attend your establishment, right? Allyship looks like calling stuff and it looks like being willing to be uncomfortable. Until everyone is comfortable, no one can be comfortable. That's the point, right? So we all got to be uncomfortable. It's okay because the fallacy is that people are comfortable, right? You go talk to your black colleagues every day and you, and they are, you, you should pat them on the back because they didn't go break a wall because of what they're dealing with. That doesn't negate anyone else's things that they're dealing with, of course. But it's just to say it's a constant, heartbreaking weight that is in every moment and every day. And it's about empathy. It's about saying, hey, I don't get it. I will never get it. I don't need to get it. But I understand that you need support. Let me know. Whatever you need. I got you. By the way, ghetto, shout out to our Jewish brothers and sisters. It's a Yiddish word um, that was created, um, which basically meant quarters where Jewish people occupied. Right, even worse. So I'm like, yeah, I'm yeah. like, you better come with you know, the etymology. And then it just got flipped to us. That was it. Laura, you better come with the etymology. Thank you. <laughs> just a reminder, you know, again, allyship and, you know, another group of people who have been. Um, marginalized and suffered and, you know, made to live in certain places. So that's how we got that word, right? So now it only reflects the Black culture now. So even in times where we are right now and in keeping in theme with what this whole podcast is encompassing, how do you feel that our white allies, our other brothers and sisters of races can actually support Juneteenth? This is why we're here. You know, like I, I, I find my personally, I found myself researching more about things that I did not take time or make time to, you know, we just came on unfor- the unfortunate centennial celebration or remembrance of the Tulsa race massacre of 1921. So with all the programming that's become available for us, I feel like, you know, we're in such a more like um, information space where you have no excuse but to get your hands onto something. But um, I, as me personally, it's like I've spent more time just researching and just watching old YouTube videos of Malcolm X speeches. And, you know, I've just, we kind of gotten sucked into an abyss of just that's all we listen to in our household when we wake up. It's like listening to a sermon. But what do you, Lori, would you have any suggestions of how our allies could be better allies? Yeah, I mean, listen, you know what? Knowledge is power and allyship is really the the, the joint handholding of empowering uh, an entire community um, and starting with those that were marginalized and using a majority group to help pull us through to the other side so we all can take advantage of all the freedoms and um, things that are offered to America. So with respect to Juneteenth, you know, listen, at the heart of Juneteenth is really the story of freedom. The time when the slaves from Texas were finally freed, you know, two years after the Emancipation Proclamation. So what does that mean today? That means looking across the board, the spectrum, to see 
who is still facing inequality, inequities? And that, what does that mean in a democratic society? Are we really free in principle? Are we really free when it comes to the economy? Are we really free when it comes to the job market? These are all the things that we need to look at and help each other with. And, you know, if that means spending Juneteenth as a day of reflection, you know, watching, you know, prolific um, documentaries or authors or even just taking the time to go to a Black Heritage Museum and then have lunch at a, a restaurant in the community. Those are all ways people could be supportive of Juneteenth, um, whether you're white or black or whatever ally you choose to be. Because um, there's a lot of Black people who had no idea what Juneteenth is either because it was primarily celebrated in Texas. So I think it's really incumbent upon us all to just do better, be more, um, ha- you know, em- have more empathy for people like Andre was talking about. You know, it really just starts off at the basic with human principles, you know, respect one another, Um you know, be better towards one another because we all have to live together. You know, what that means in the next few years as America becomes something else is really what we need to sort of um, focus our attention on and get better at because we're either going to be divided or we're going to come together. And my wish is that we all come together. And we can start on Juneteenth and understanding what it means for freedom for everybody, you know, especially black people. Well said. Andre, would you like to add anything? No. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, happy Juneteenth, everybody. (laughs) Right. It's like with that said, happy Juneteenth. Um, I'm going to pin it. Lori, Andre, I appreciate you for joining me in this conversation today. And before we end uh, today's recording, I would like to just read a quote by Alicia Garza, civil rights activist and co-founder of Black Lives Matter movement. This was stated back in 2015. She said, in quotes, the fight is not just being able to keep breathing. The fight is actually to be able to walk down the street with your head held high and feel like I belong here or I deserve to be here or I just have a right to have a level of dignity. End quote. Well said. Uh, again, echoing freedom and let freedom ring for everybody, not just a chosen few. Mm-hmm. Amen. We'll be back next week with our regularly scheduled content. If you want to email us with high praise that I should be on here more often, please email us at podcasts at gray.com. Finally, because I have the mic, I will close with stay safe Stay conscious and stay social. The Five Things are produced by Joey Scarillo and Danielle Hunt. Mixed at Gramercy Park Studios by Guy Rosemarin with support from post-producer Ned Martin. Additional support by John Jenkinson and Christina Hyde. Gray is a global creative agency whose mission is putting famously effective ideas into the world. Check out more at gray.com. Thank you, friends. Stay conscious and stay social. <laughs> stay proud and stay black. <laughs> right. I don't think you have much choice. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs>